Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Welcome to episode 11 in the series of podcasts recorded at the NCSM 39th Annual Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, March 19 through 21, 2007. This episode is titled Teaching Mathematics as an Unnatural Activity and is presented by Deborah Loenberg-Ball from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Whereas teaching mathematics requires more than general teaching skill, learning to teach mathematics is also not a natural byproduct of knowing mathematics. Teaching mathematics is, in fact, an unnatural activity. Deborah shares what it takes to make the shift from knowing mathematics to being able to help others know it and what this implies for the initial preparation, assessment, and professional development of teachers. Deborah is introduced by Canada Regional Director Ralph Connolly. It is my privilege and honor this afternoon to be introducing to you Deborah Ball. Uh, if I try to include all of the accolades and accomplishments that she has, I would be taking up all of her time. So I will invite you instead to uh, read the description in the program booklet. She's got a couple of named chairs. She's a dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Uh, for those of us from Canada, we have to be careful because sometimes in the States we say, oh, University of Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, and we are aware that uh, sometimes in the States folks get a little touchy about uh, those universities. So. Um, I'm, what I'm going to do is just take just a minute to talk about the influence that, uh, that Deborah Ball has had for me personally, working with the Ministry of Education in Ontario on a, on a math initiative over the last couple of years. We were asked to prepare resources and recommendations and report uh, to move that initiative forward and that whatever we recommended needed to be supported with the literature and, and research. And as we started to prepare our recommendations and as we started to prepare our report, we would look at the recommendation and then look, you know, look at the, the supporting evidence that, that led us to that recommendation and kind of recall, I think Deborah Ball had something on that. Uh, and then we'd look at the next recommendation report. And Deborah Ball had a, quite a bit on that. Uh, and so needless to say, in our final report, there are uh, incredible numbers of citations to Deborah Ball and her most extensive work. She wanted me to be sure to make sure people were aware uh, that she was a classroom teacher for many, many years, and she said that's one of her uh, accomplishments that she's very proud of. Uh, and that, so a lot of her work, of course, is grounded in the kinds of things that she experienced as a classroom teacher and continues to be in classrooms uh, very, very often. So without further ado, Deborah Ball. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ralph. It's really my great honor to be invited to speak uh, at NCSM um, again. I find that this is one of um, the conferences I really look forward to, and the community of people who populate NCSM are among those I, I really care most about in terms of the things we're all trying to get done. Often when I've designed these um, opportunities to talk with you, I've tried to build them from year to year, almost like a sort of quasi-curriculum of our own learning over time. And I think that you'll recognize themes in what I've organized to talk about today, but it takes a little bit of point of departure, starting from a different place than some of the other years when I've talked to you, and has this provocative title, Teaching Mathematics as an Unnatural Activity. So why don't we get started? The basic question that, um, underlies today's talk is the following. How is teaching mathematics well related to, being, to knowing and being, quote, good at mathematics? So let me just give a little background for why this question preoccupies me and why it arises both in the policy environment, but what it has to do with those of us who work to support teachers or to teach or to provide teacher education. 
So we live at a time when perhaps more than ever before we have as a nation the goal of having a mathematically skilled population that extends more broadly than perhaps ever before. The goals that we hold for students' mathematical proficiency have increased and broadened over the last 50 years. I don't have to tell you that because in many cases you're the ones um, confronting how different, how different are the expectations now than they may have been 25 or 30 years ago. Um, but we've not only ramped up what we expect students to be good at, but we've also broadened who we think needs to be successful at mathematics, what in fact we mean by mathematical proficiency itself. We no longer are only arguing about what topics and at what level, but what comprises being proficient at mathematics, and at the heart of it, what is important to learn. And all of those have been not only changing, but increasing and becoming more complicated. I would describe the time that we're living through as not reform, but actually a radical renovation of our aspirations and our goals for mathematics education in this country. And we're pretty far from some of those goals to which we aspire. Now, you, you probably won't be surprised to know that my own sense about this is that we have no hope of achieving these very, I think, important aspirations without thinking carefully about the role of teachers and the problem that the very centrality of teachers' role holds for us in our efforts to improve mathematics education. So I think this is almost unnecessary to say at NCSM, but teachers are absolutely key. You could think of any other number of innovations that you think might have an impact on students' opportunities to learn really worthwhile mathematics in classrooms. You can improve the curriculum. You can reduce class size. You can add new forms of technology. All of those certainly help. But not one of those can make any real difference for what students do in school without paying attention to the teacher's capacity to manage and make use of the resources and to manage the environment in which they're trying to make use of those. So here's the other part. We don't exactly have an overwhelming supply of highly qualified and skillful teachers. So on one hand, we have these aspirations. Second point is we need teachers in order to make any of them reality for students. But we don't have an adequate supply, either numerically or certainly in terms of quality and skill. And not only are we lacking the numbers that we need and the quality we need, but we, and this is perhaps most cogent for the work that you do and that I also do, we don't have a system of preparing the supply of teachers or supporting those who are currently in the classroom in ways that help them develop skills in a way they would need. So that, that creates a fundamental question that underlies all of your work and mine too, and is the basic question bigger than this talk. How do we, or how can we, better develop and support the teachers we need to reach the goals that we have? So I'm going to focus today, when I talked about that question, what's the relationship between being, quote, good at math and teaching math well, around the following kind of pressing policy um, phenomenon. One of the approaches, among a whole set of those, that is currently popular, and I can understand why, is to reach out into our national population and to try to interest people in the population who are already skillful at mathematics, who are also trained in the discipline, and try to find incentives and other sorts of approaches to recruit them to become teachers of K-12 students. It makes a certain amount of sense. I'm going to use in my talk these two icons as examples of scientifically trained people whom we might choose to recruit to teaching, and we'll be returning to these icons to help make a point I want to make. I'm actually going to locate my own most recent encounter with this policy phenomenon in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where, if you may have seen in the national news, Pfizer Pharmaceutical decided about one month ago to pull out of Ann Arbor. Now, Pfizer is a huge employer of scientifically trained people in the Ann Arbor area. And Michigan's economy itself is under great stress. So when we lose an employer like that in a community, it's very serious, not only for those employed at the particular company, but for all the secondary occupations that are affected. So in this case, the closing of Pfizer meant that there was suddenly a pool, potentially, of scientifically capable people in the Ann Arbor community who may have had interest in entering teaching. And in fact, 
at the School of Education, we were really fairly surprised to learn that a rather sizable fraction of those people expressed interest in exploring whether they might, at this point in their lives, enter teaching. Some of them said things like, I've always wondered whether I might not like to be a mathematics or science teacher. This seems like my moment. What are the programs available for people like me? So why does something like this, in fact, make sense? First of all, it's pretty simple. These are people who, in some sense, you could say, know math. They have already been trained in the field. They've been using it professionally in the work that they do. Moreover, not only do they know math, but they like math. And they may be in positions to help K-12 students understand why mathematics matters, why it's interesting, why it's enjoyable, things that some of the teachers we find in classrooms themselves aren't so sure about. Moreover, they can serve as role models for our K-12 students. To be, have as your teacher somebody who has spent part of her or his life using mathematics professionally in some other occupation means that they have encounters that they don't currently have with people who are mathematically trained, who grew up learning it and liking it and did work that involved it. Think how rarely our students learn what people who learn and study mathematics go on to do professionally. And I guess some policymakers would be inclined to say, these are people who are, in quotes, smart. And some policymakers think that's our current problem, that we don't have the smart people in the classroom. I differ with that, but that's not what this talk is about. So let's think a little bit about why this phenomenon of recruiting mathematically trained people into teaching is presumed to be a good strategy. So I'm going to return to my little people and say, so here are these people who are mathematically trained. They are skillful at mathematics. They've studied a fair amount of mathematics. They like it. They've been engaged with it professionally over time, not just since their degree. And then theory seems to be that if we add a little bit of knowledge of students, psychology, learning theory, things about how students learn to the mathematical knowledge that they have, and equip them with a whole toolkit of approaches for teaching, they're going to be pretty much set up to be teachers. I would call this a kind of additive view of preparing teachers who come out of this particular strand of our population. Start with knowledge of mathematics, add some knowledge of students, add some knowledge of teaching practices, and you're good to go. So I want to now turn to considering how sensible is this view, actually. So first of all, there's a lot about it that makes sense. Think about how many mathematical demands people who teach mathematics face. Things that you might overlook because they're so commonplace, but in fact demand mathematical knowledge. Teachers use textbooks. Using a textbook means that you've got to read the textbook, understand what it's presenting, and it would be great if you could discover when the textbook actually doesn't represent the mathematics accurately or well, or has an error, or could be improved with a better selection of examples or problems. So something for which mathematical knowledge is helpful. Teachers present content all the time. Either they use the textbook itself or they prepare their own material. They show students how to solve problems. Again, people who know math ought to be in a pretty good position to do these rather routine parts of teaching work. They answer questions when students are stuck. They assess students' work including the things kids say in class and the homework that they do, tests and the like. And every one of these things requires knowing mathematics. So, so far, so good. Now, in the research that I've been doing with my colleagues over the last decade and more, we've been studying teaching directly in the effort to try to understand an answer to the question, what sort of mathematical knowledge matters for teaching? In what ways does someone who teaches mathematics have to know and manage the knowledge and skills and habits of the discipline in order to help kids learn math? It's, in some sense, a specialized kind of work. So although these are rather mundane parts of the work of teaching, in our research we've found that there are more subtle parts of the work of teaching that also require mathematical skill and knowledge. So that should also help to compel still further why having people who come out of a mathematically trained background might be suitable as people to add to our teaching force. So here are some examples of the slightly more subtle parts of the things that teachers do daily 
that requires substantial mathematical skill. These are, in fact, the reasons why we don't want people in classrooms teaching students who don't have mathematics in their background, because doing good teaching depends on a whole host of mathematical skills that might not be apparent to policymakers. So one example is using representations, and when using multiple representations, being able to build the links between, for example, a geometric representation, an algebraic, a numeric one, showing students how one feature of one representation maps into the language of another one, and so on. Being able to define terms closely inside of a classroom in ways that are mathematically careful and precise, but accessible to students. Being very attentive to mathematical language makes sense that someone who's fluent in mathematics ought to be in a good position to exercise that sort of care in their talk, in the way they teach students to talk, in the way they look at students' use of language. They use notation and they invent it. They respond to students' efforts to invent notation. They analyze explanations that their students produce and they also themselves explain. All of these things are clearly things that demand substantial mathematical knowledge and skill. My favorite is asking mathematical questions. In classrooms, when teachers pose questions, the best ones are ones that naturally grow from the discipline. When you see a question that involves multiple solutions to a problem, it's natural to ask, do we have we found all of those solutions? That's not a natural question in a history class. You don't ask, have we found all the interpretations for this event? So knowing what's a natural mathematical question is an important piece of the equipment that a good teacher uses when teaching students. Asking questions like, do we have all the solutions? How are two representations related? Why does this work? Those are all mathematically natural questions to ask. Thinking of special cases, a student makes a proposal, it's natural to be able to say, let's look at the number zero. Does it work with zero? Does it work with fractions? Having a sense about how you look for boundary cases when someone makes a conjecture is again part of the kind of mathematical skill that matters enormously for teaching. I just want to give you a couple of closer examples of the subtlety of the mathematical demands of teaching that would lead us to be able to see why it would in fact be quite useful to have people populating classrooms who bring these kinds of habits of mind, these mathematical dispositions and skills and insights inside the work because the work itself is more subtly mathematically demanding than most people appreciate. Consider, for example, not just knowing how to divide two by two-thirds, but being able to assess across four different representations of that division, which of these actually can be used to represent the meaning of two divided by two-thirds. Now, teachers have to do this for a lot of reasons. They might have a textbook that has an inaccurate representation. They would need to notice that. They might have one that's a little complicated, like B. Now, to use B, a teacher will actually have to be able to narrate to herself what exactly about two divided by two-thirds is that representing. So the book alone can't do very much if the teacher doesn't understand how that could be a representation for two divided by two thirds, and what's the talk that goes with it to make clear how that's representing that division. Teachers also make up their own representations all the time, so in part I'm trying to illustrate that teaching is much more than knowing how to do the math that the kids are doing. Another kind of work of teaching that I find very interesting is that Teachers have to generate really strategic cases for students to consider. So in teaching about rectangles to upper elementary students, for example, it turns out that kids have a kind of canonical image of a rectangle, but if you were teaching fourth grade and wanted to provoke students into a more careful notion of what constitutes a rectangle and even to define it, you might want to generate a set of special cases that you know would help students hone in on what a rectangle actually is. So the production of a set of cases like this requires a kind of subtle unpacking of the notion of rectangle that is natural to thinking carefully about mathematics. And if we have a little more time, and I will post these slides, it's very interesting to go through and think about what's the usefulness of each example up here? 
You know, for instance, what is it about C that could be useful in provoking students to think carefully about rectangle? Well, it would grow from the fact that students sometimes don't take the notion of closed all that seriously and think, oh, you know, it's basically a closed figure, basically a rectangle. And no one's really attended to the fact that they need to be helped to see that in geometry we don't estimate. We don't say things are almost rectangles. But each thing up here has a kind of explanation. And a teacher who's sensitive mathematically is in a great position to choose well from among the array of things that are and are not rectangles to help hone in carefully on a really precise notion of rectangle. Choosing examples is a closely related task that teachers engage in all the time that's mathematically intensive and demanding. So suppose you're teaching students to do division and you're using base 10 blocks to model it. Turns out that trying to think about an alternative set of mathematics problems to give the students when you're going to use the structure of base 10 blocks as the tool you know what? All problems don't look the same once you start planning which numeric example will be useful in helping kids use base 10 blocks to model. So here are three. I'd like to invite you to just take a moment to see if you can think through the structure of the base 10 blocks, not how to teach it, not whether this will help kids, but can you differentiate among these three examples to notice which might be the most compelling one to use and why? mathematically. Just take a moment and see if you can do that sort of mathematical thinking about these three examples. You can talk to people next to you if you want. If you get a little ways into this example, you should start noticing that all problems aren't created equal when the lens of the base 10 block structure is imposed on top of the numerical examples. For instance, 568 divided by 7 immediately requires every student to have 56 10 rods in order to perform the problem because 500s isn't divisible into seven equal groups. So when you walk through each of these examples, you'll uncover things that arise in the modeling that would make you think that one or another of these is better at helping students see the meaning of the procedure, but not unnecessarily creating huge demands on trading or numbers of units or, or rods. That sort of thinking is a kind of mathematical analysis that doesn't have to do yet with how to teach or what kids know, but just a kind of thinking about mathematics that often goes unnoticed and unappreciated in the work of teaching. A final example would be one that I mentioned earlier about attending closely to language. Teachers have to worry about whether students are developing accurate concepts and the kinds of definitions that they are using or learning, either implicitly or explicitly. So here are four, sorry, three different definitions of even number that I've called from looking at various textbook materials. I want you to take a moment and see if you can determine whether any of these correctly identifies even number, and if so, which ones. So again, teachers have to do this kind of work, whether it's that their students propose definitions, or their book holds definitions, or they offer a definition. And these are very common, commonly found in elementary and middle school and even high school materials. Well, it's pretty interesting to notice that definition number one allows you to consider seven as even. Seven can be divided into two equal parts with nothing left over. And so can quite a few other numbers. In fact, basically any number is even with definition one. And number three, with zero, two, four, six, or eight in the ones place, allows 32.7, for instance, to be an even number. So the kind of sloppiness that can sometimes arise in schools over language has serious consequences for the assumptions that kids develop. We need teachers who can attend subtly to those sometimes unnoticed aspects of the mathematical demands of teaching. So essentially so far, when you think about my little mathematically trained people that I'm asking you to think about and what it might mean to prepare Pfizer employees or people like them to enter teaching, so far, so good. Because in part, what I'm showing you is that 
Teaching is actually naturally, mathematically natural work. It involves lots of habits of mind and skills that are inherent to the discipline itself. But I'm also about to turn a corner in this talk because I'm going to tell you now some things that will cause me to think there are some significant limits to the notion of teaching as mathematically natural work. So the natural part, as I've said, some aspects of teaching depend on mathematical instincts, habits of mind, and practices that we don't find as often as we need among current teachers. Teaching is mathematically demanding work. So maybe the additive view of learning to teach may make sense. Just take people who have these highly developed mathematical instincts, skills, and habits of mind and add the things they're lacking. Knowledge of students, knowledge of culture, knowledge of context ideas about how to teach particular content. This is the kind of thinking that many policymakers adopt. So, here's my turn of, turn of hand here. Teaching mathematics also involves doing things that are fundamentally unnatural mathematically. Now before I take you into this part of the talk, which focuses on mathematics, and the ways in which things that teachers have to do mathematically in their teaching, are grating or discordant or fundamentally unnatural for people trained in mathematics, I first want to stop and say something about teaching itself, not math teaching, but teaching itself. I'm going to spend a moment talking about how teaching itself is actually unnatural work, and then I'll resume talking about the mathematical unnaturalness of teaching. So I'm going to contrast in this um, segment common ways of being as an adult an educated adult interacting in the world and natural things that we all do with the ways of being demanded by being a teacher. Okay, so I'm just generally trying to make the claim that teaching is not natural adult work. So first of all, one thing that's central to common ways of being in the world is to tell and show other people how to do things, help people out. When someone's stuck, do things for them, show them things, help them, explain and tell. But in teaching, an unnatural thing that's required, that's common to teaching, is that sometimes when people are stuck, what's needed is to watch what they're doing, listen closely to someone who's stuck, help other people learn to do things. That's, an, that's a way of being that's demanded by teaching that isn't necessarily commonly demanded by being an adult. I'm gonna keep going in that same kind of back and forth. Pretty clearly, uh, something we value, especially in American culture, is to be yourself. We hear this all the time about important of authenticity, sincerity, being yourself in your interactions with people and in everyday life. Well, pretty questionable about whether being yourself is appropriate when you're a teacher. You're in a professional role. It's actually not quite appropriate to be yourself in lots of ways. And you can think of some that are silly, and you can think of them that are serious, that aren't appropriate. You don't bring your personal views inside of interactions with students or with families, and teachers who do, in fact, have difficulty pulling off the professional imperatives of the role. So in fact, and this is hard often for beginning teachers to unlearn, being yourself is not a virtue, even though it's critical in everyday life. A third one is that in everyday life, you have to assume you know what other people mean a lot of the time. Imagine how dysfunctional it would be if every time somebody said something, you paused and said, what did you mean by breakfast? And what kind of eggs exactly? When you said eggs, what were you thinking about? And when you said later, like, talk a little more about what you meant by later. It, we just, you can't imagine communicating. And, and I'm giving a silly example, but in fact, if you watch the rest of the day today, you'll see that we manage because we manage to assume that most of the time we know what other people are saying. It would be completely impossible to get through the day if we didn't. But in teaching, one actually has to start with the assumption that you might not know what someone else means. You might have to hear a student saying something and think, it sounds like what I think, but maybe that's not what that student means or the student sounds like they're saying something incorrect. I'm sure you've had the experience of asking a question, learning students thinking about it in an incredibly constructive way, but the expression didn't help you to see that at first. So assuming that you know what other people mean is not a functional way of being in teaching. 
In everyday life, we like to help soothe people's feelings and protect them from embarrassing by correcting and smoothing over mistakes. Oh, that wasn't such a big deal. You basically had it, and so on. But in teaching, not only is that not functional, but in fact, we do the evil thing of provoking disequilibrium and provoking mistakes. Not a natural way to be in everyday life. This one, I think, is particularly, of all the ones on the slide, very related to the challenges we face in teaching equitably in schools. In everyday life, and you may argue with this, we make the assumption that other people experience the world, events, things that happen, phenomena, in ways that are similar to the way that we experience them. But in fact, it's crucial in teaching not to presume that you share identity with your students, but that you instead need to seek to learn how people whose experiences and culture and background are different from yours might be interpreting or seeing things, and not to take for granted that what feels like praise to you is praise to someone else, or what feels like recognition or rebuke feels the same way to someone else, and a whole host of other things. So on the left-hand side, you see things that are common part of adept adult functioning. On the right hand, you see a set of things not exhaustive, but a set of things that are commonly demanded of being a teacher, and the two don't line up all that way. So now I want to move on to talk about um, the specific case of mathematics teaching as mathematically unnatural work. I'm going to use five examples of things that teachers have to do mathematically that are, as I said earlier, grading, difficult, discordant to people with a strong mathematical sensibility. Here are the five, and then we're going to spend a few minutes dipping into each of these with a little bit of experience. The five are unpacking mathematical ideas, listening to mathematically imprecise language, not affirming mathematically correct statements automatically, hearing what other people say, not what you think, and surfacing error. And I've kind of foreshadowed these a little bit in my overall comments about teaching, but we're going to now look more closely at mathematics teaching and give you just a little taste of what I'm arguing about the mathematical unnaturalness, not of teaching, but of the mathematical aspects of teaching in which teachers engage. So I'm going to start with example one, which is unpacking mathematical ideas. So first, in each case, I'm going to say, Briefly, what makes this so mathematically unnatural? Then look at an example of it and then come back again. So what makes unpacking mathematical ideas unnatural? Well, at the heart of mathematics is compression. Mathematics aims for concise, compressed expression of ideas, but not so much in teaching and learning mathematics. So let's just look at an example. Think about how one might define fraction from a mathematical point of view. One definition might be to express a fraction as a representation of a rational number of the form A over B, where A and B are integers, and B is not equal to 0. So that's one way to express fraction, very, very compressed. That's a natural way to try to express something as tightly and as completely and precisely as possible. One might also say a rational number is a real number that's representable as a quotient of two integers with the denominator not equal to zero. These both would count for mathematically trained people as precise, compressed, not unpacked expressions of fraction. Now consider what sort of knowledge of fraction underlies the way that fraction might need to be represented and dealt with in teaching fractions. So, Consider stage two of what is a fraction, and consider the following slide. Being able to look at a set of diagrams like this, or pictures, or representations, and consider which of these, in fact, could be construed as a representation of 3 fourths is quite an unpacked way of understanding what constitutes a fraction or not. So take a moment and see, pick one, particularly maybe pick one that's puzzling to you, and see if you can reason to yourself about whether or not this might represent three-fourths. So take I, for example. I is pretty interesting. There are people in this room right now who aren't sure whether I rep could be interpreted as three-fourths. It's the one down here at the bottom right. There are people in the room who think the red could be interpreted as three-fourths. And there are people in the room who think the white could be interpreted as three-fourths. 
So take a moment and see if you can see the red as three-fourths or the white as three-fourths. Can you see that? So that kind of flexibility of understanding has to do with being able to unpack the core ideas of the meaning of fraction. And these compressed ways of talking about fraction, while they're more natural mathematically, aren't as serviceable for the kind of unpacked understanding of fraction that's necessary for teaching. So let's think about this for a minute. Why is that? Why is this important in teaching? Well, as people are learning ideas, let's say fraction, then the elements of the ideas need to be encountered sequentially over time and developed in order to arrive at a compressed or complete understanding. So having a complete understanding as the teacher, but not being able to unpack the key elements and be able to sequence students' encounters with those toward a mature understanding doesn't equip you very well. And yet, it's quite unnatural to be able to do that because the tendency and the inclination in mathematics is to compress. To teach a core concept, one has to be able to do that kind of unpacking in order to stage and sequence students' learning. So on one hand, it's not the natural thing to do. On the other, it's mathematically central to teaching. So that's my first example of something that's mathematically unnatural and yet mathematically critical for teaching. Now I want you, as you go through these, to try hard to focus on my argument, which is not about the teaching, but about the mathematical work that's involved. Because clearly there are teaching things going on in my examples, too. But what I'm arguing is that some of the mathematical reasoning and thinking and knowledge that one has to do to teach are not natural to the discipline, which would suggest we have something to worry about in simply the additive view when we recruit people who are mathematically trained into teaching. So keep your eye on that question, and we'll come back to it. So my second example is that in teaching, teachers need to be able to listen to mathematically imprecise language, and that this is unnatural. So what makes that unnatural? Well, mathematics is exemplary for its Im the importance it places on precision. It's a strictly denotative language. And in mathematics, taking things absolutely literally and not making inferences about what might be meant is a virtue. That's part of its elegance, and part of its power derives from that very, that very emphasis on precision. Now, I don't think I probably have to say very much to help you think about why that disposition isn't natural for teaching. But just in case I have to, we're going to take a little excursion into a classroom just to get a renewed sense of the kind of language that teachers have to listen to all the time. So in this example, the problem that students are going to be discussing is going to be a very short video clip just to get a taste of this unnatural activity of listening to imprecise language. The problem that the students on the video are talking about, these are third graders, is this one. Joshua, who was at that time a six-month-old baby, ate 16 peas on Monday and 32 peas on Tuesday. How many more peas did he eat on Tuesday than on Monday? Now, I'm going to show you a very short clip of tape, and your task with respect to this listening to imprecise language is to listen to a girl named Rania. Rania is saying this at the beginning. After a boy named Shay says that he can understand and interpret this problem on the number line, and he shows that, which you'll see, she says, I would say something else. I want to prove that his answer is right. Your job is to listen to the way she expresses herself mathematically and notice the unnaturalness from a mathematical perspective of having to listen mathematically to Rania's talk, okay? Too sure what Rania is saying. And what I'd like you to take a moment now to do is exercise that kind of unnatural activity of listening mathematically. What do you think Rania is saying? you have a little more the luxury of a bystander. What do you think she's saying? So, I don't think it's on. Okay, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about what makes this mathematically central for teaching, but unnatural 
mathematically. So listening to mathematically imprecise language, why is this central to teaching mathematics? Why is this kind of mathematical activity so important? Well, first, as students learn, even though we're talking about a discipline that's mathematically precise, they don't s express their ideas automatically in precise form or concise or compressed form. They have to express themselves informally and imprecisely. That's part of what learning is about. That means that for the teacher, the teacher has to learn how to listen mathematically, but listen in a way that one might refer to as generously, and make inferences to interpret what they mean. Remember that I said earlier that making inferences isn't natural mathematically. The kind of hard-edged criticism of mathematical language is part of what makes it work. It's not what makes teaching mathematics work. Teachers have to tolerate imprecision and assume often that students are making sense, even when what they're saying makes the least sense possible. And teachers have to figure out how to ask questions to figure out what students mean. At the end of this video clip, the teacher says, oh, that's interesting. The teacher doesn't even seem to have an idea of what to ask Rania about what she's saying. Now, whether she should or shouldn't have asked a question isn't my point, but being able to hear equips you with having the ability to ask another question. And since the transaction is about the mathematics and the students, this kind of unnatural toleration of imprecision and the ability to listen through it toward the more mature mathematical understanding is central to mathematics, however not natural to mathematics as a discipline. Okay, the third one, remember to pay attention to the mathematics here, is that in teaching, one must at times consider correct statements without automatically confirming them. Now, why is that unnatural mathematically? When correct statements are made in mathematics, it's important to justify, prove, or affirm their truth. That's part of why we arrive at a sequence of accumulating knowledge in mathematics that permits us to make new sorts of claims based on established knowledge. However, in teaching, there are many times when students say things that are correct when it may not be the right thing to say, oh, good, right, you got that. I'm not saying teachers might always not say that, but there are times when that's not the right move, and it's not mathematically natural when someone has just said something which appears to sound elegant and not affirm it right away. So again, I'm going to look at a very short clip of tape, and just to set you up for this, students are working on a problem comparing four-fourths with four-eighths. And Lynn, at the board, says, after a very careful exposition with a drawing, I think this one, and she points to the drawing of four-fourths on your left, is bigger because um, four-eighths, that's only like a half. And this, and she refers to the four-fourths, is a whole piece. Okay, so here I want you to watch this very small clip and think about why it might be important not to say good job to Lynn because in fact something else happens. And that segment from what you've seen to not say, good job, Lynn has the drawing correct and has it given the right answer. Can you think of any reason why, at that moment, that might be a move to make? So talk for a moment with your neighbors about that. Let me say a couple of things about why, in teaching, it's important to not necessarily affirm correct statements. And I'm not saying one never does it. I'm just saying, why would one not always do that automatically? The first is, and I think most of the experienced teachers in the room will know that, just because something correct is said doesn't mean students understand it. Doesn't mean the other students in the class understand it. Doesn't even mean the speaker understands it. So making the presumption that what's said is what you meant can often lead you astray. And second, to the extent that a teacher is trying to build a culture of understanding that places authority on mathematical reasoning, to verify explanations, then having the teacher say, good job, that's right, may work against something that has to do with the building of mathematical capacity. So, although it's natural to say good job when one sees a mathematically correct solution as a mathematician, it's not obvious that it's natural all the time in teaching and can in fact be pretty disturbing 
for someone who's mathematically trained to see something elegant produced and then not affirmed in a classroom. The fourth example, which I'm just going to narrate and not show you the video, because I'd rather show you the fifth one and then wrap up, is that hearing what others say and not what you think, hearing what other people are saying and not what you yourself have in your mind is central to teaching, but not so natural. Why is it unnatural mathematically? Mathematical frameworks are strong and orienting. They provide a way of hearing the world and listening and interpreting that can make it difficult to suspend when someone else is talking or doing mathematics. So one clip that I could show you, but I can narrate just as well, is in a video that many of you have seen where a boy named Shay says he's been thinking about the number six, and he says, I've been thinking about the number six. I'm thinking it can be an odd number, too. Many people hear Shay is wrong. What's his problem? Doesn't he know six is even? Did the teacher not explain what six was clearly? A very rapid assumption that what Shay is saying is incorrect. Why is it that that happens for people who have strong mathematical instincts? Well, because they already know that six is even. So when a student says, I'm thinking it could be an odd number two, it's actually mathematically unnatural to stop what you think and imagine what could a student who actually does know that six is even, what in the world could he be saying? That suspension of one's own frame to understand what a student says is an important feature of teaching. Now, suspending one's own mathematical overlay matters. Similarly, suspending the assumption that students have misconceptions or are making errors matter. Think of all the times that students say things in school that have mathematical quality and validity, but that are heard as errors. How many times does that have to happen to a student before the student concludes that either they're not good at math or math is a senseless field or both? The capacity to imagine that someone could be seeing something or hearing something different from what you think is an important element of teaching, but not natural and not easy to do if one has strong mathematical instincts. So in this case, Shea wasn't wrong. He was appropriating language of even and odd to describe a phenomenon he had noticed, which was that some even numbers have an odd structure. That is, they have an odd number of groups of two. And in a short discussion between he and his class, him and his classmates, something, an interesting mathematical observation unfolded. Now, was that mathematically important to the curriculum? Maybe not to mastering even and odd numbers, which the students already knew. But for learning what one does when one observes something mathematically and how you would then name it is an important part of mathematical proficiency. Consider those ambitious goals I mentioned at the beginning. If we're serious that students will learn to reason mathematically, then that experience of being able to notice, name, and work on mathematics that's not always standard will be important at times. And the capacity for a teacher to hear through unstandard ways of thinking will be critical in order to develop the capacity for mathematical reasoning. The last example is one that I think is one of the most unnatural parts of teaching, which is rather than covering up error or excusing it or protecting people from embarrassment, teachers often have to surface, bring out, and even provoke error on purpose. What makes that unnatural? Mathematical instinct is, from everything else we've been saying today, precise, compressed, careful, correct. The instinct is to critique a slightly imprecise statement or a wrong idea and not allow incorrect or sloppy statements to stand for very long. They're kind of an affront to the kind of value one place a mathematical aesthetic one has on carefulness. So I'm going to return to the little video that I showed you of Lynn and her four-fourths and four-eighths, go a little further into that same segment after the teacher asks for comments. A boy named Kevin talks about how he thought about four-fourths and four-eighths. And notice how the teacher responds to this comment when she might have said, Kevin, that's wrong. In fact, he himself says it was wrong. What could be the reason for taking up a comment from a student where he says, first I did something different, and then I was wrong. What could be the mathematical reasoning involved? Mathematically unnatural, not only the teacher taking up a student error, but in fact, 
drawing an incorrect solution on the board. Think about how grating that is to people with mathematical instincts. So why might that be? Learning involves sensible efforts that can run way amok, and discussing and analyzing these are important to developing stronger understanding. That idea that the unit matters is at the heart of comparing fractions at this stage. So the importance of looking at Kevin's example is critical to the unpacking we talked about earlier. The unit is crucial as an idea. The definition we looked at of fraction wouldn't have allowed you to know that surfacing this error is at the heart of the concept. Some errors aren't errors at all, like Shea with his number six. So taking up what appears to be error sometimes isn't error at all. But doing this is unnatural, I would claim, because it requires suppressing what are natural instincts mathematically to protect students from exposure and embarrassment, to correct wrong statements. So where does this take me? I want to argue to you that teaching mathematics is not merely a natural extension of learning mathematics. To do that, let me just um, switch from where I am right here for one second. So first of all, echoing what I said earlier about teaching and being an adult, teaching in classrooms, to be specific about the mathematics, isn't about being yourself mathematically in the classroom. As I said before, teaching mathematics isn't a matter of standing at the board and performing mathematics while people watch you. That's a ludicrous imitation of teaching. So somehow it's not about being the mathematical person that you are all the time. Being, quote, smart in teaching requires skills and habits of mind that are not just extension of other kinds of mathematical learning that people who are skillful in mathematics might bring to teaching. This has, I think, major implications for equity concerns and for our ambitious goals for renovating mathematics education because people who come into the classroom being themselves mathematically are, I would argue, poorly equipped for the kind of unnatural work that's involved in helping people different from yourself learn to appreciate and become skillful with mathematics. The kinds of unnatural work I showed you in the second part of my talk are necessary for addressing the question of teaching all students to high levels of proficiency. And teaching is a role. So teaching mathematics requires learning new mathematical instincts that aren't part of the prior mathematical lives that people who come into teaching from these other pathways might bring. It means learning, as I've tried to show you, new ways of seeing, of hearing, and new instincts mathematically. They're actually tailored specifically for mathematical work in teaching and not part of the mathematical work of working in a pharmaceutical company or some other industry or science. So let me go back to my um, scientifically trained people and offer a different view of what it might take to take scientifically trained people and equip them for the classroom. So I'm arguing it's not just adding the things that they might take, but instead what they are going to need are new ways to see mathematically, new ways to hear and talk mathematically than what they've used elsewhere, new kinds of ideas and knowledge that, and ways to d continue to acquire those over time from their interaction in classrooms with students. So what does that mean for the challenge of learning to teach mathematics if you come into teaching through the pathways that this talk has been about? Although, as I've tried to argue, it may be logical to add knowledge and skills to a strong mathematical base, Teaching also requires to do a whole host of things that are not natural to the mathematical training that these people have had. That means that we, in our roles as teacher educators, teacher developers, teacher leaders, or colleagues to these people, have to help new teachers who come into teaching from the mathematics professions and from sciences learn unnatural activities that weren't automatically learned from their study of math, or from simply hanging out in classrooms with students and gaining experience. So the additive view, which I showed you before, goes something like that. I think instead what we're talking about is a more transformative view that begins with people who do have some knowledge of mathematics, often quite extensive, 
but who, as they begin to acquire knowledge of students and knowledge of teaching practices, knowledge of culture and context, and all the things that matter for using mathematics to help students learn, will actually be transformed and their knowledge increased. It's not merely additive, but a kind of interactive transformation of the mathematical resources that they bring to our field with a kind of transformative experience that allows them to retool those resources for the specialized mathematical work that teaching is. I'll leave you with a few questions that this analysis leaves us with. First, the basic one, which is, how can mathematically skillful people who like these Pfizer employees, whom I'm really quite happy to welcome into the School of Education, but what sort of transformative activity ought we in our program for them or in alternative programs we might design help them to make that kind of transformation? How do people who enter with strong conventional backgrounds like these people compare with those whose mathematical skill has grown from the work of teaching and from being teachers? How do they end up 10 years from now or five years from now? What does the trajectory look like? I think an interesting question is, how do these mathematical instincts that I've tried to show you today, like surfacing error or listening against the grain of your own frameworks, how do you develop those kind of mathematical dispositions, the pleasure in hearing imprecise and imperfect but new and fresh mathematical ideas? How do you develop that form of doing and knowing mathematics? What helps people to acquire that? Are there phenomena like this in other fields? For example, if we weren't mathematics educators, but history educators, does this go on when historians become teachers? Or is this some peculiar problem that has to do with the connection between mathematics as a discipline and the work of teaching? Or is this in common with any kind of phenomenon where people come from the discipline into teaching practice later in their lives? And finally, of course, how can professional education prepare people for the mathematical work of teaching such as it is? And how can it be best tailored for the different kinds of entrants that we do want to welcome into our ranks? So our challenge is the following. The policy environment is all around us, and it demands qualified teachers without very much talk about what constitutes qualified. And it's our responsibility as professionals, and I think we've said this here before, to be articulate and to be working toward a better conception of what it means to be qualified mathematically for our students in their classrooms. Now, if all we do is get annoyed that people are advocating for things that seem to us senseless, common sense will always overcome any kind of arguments we make. So if we don't have solid evidence for, for example, that someone can't just come in with mathematical training and enter a classroom, if we can't produce evidence that that, in fact, doesn't produce skillful teachers, the common sense of the argument, which it is pretty common sense to think, get people who like math and put them in the classroom, common sense will triumph. So it's not good enough for us to say, I heard a talk by Deborah Ball and this probably won't work. We actually are going to have to think about how to accumulate the evidence that people need something more than just adding a little bit of knowledge of teaching and a little knowledge of psychology in order to be good teachers. So our challenge is, given the fact that I'm arguing that teaching mathematics is not a natural activity, it means that good professional education, such as the kind we're engaged in trying to learn about and provide, matters. So. What are the forms that that can take? And how can we establish this sort of evidentiary base that good professional education really makes a difference? I would argue that if we can't do that, we will continue to be surrounded with propositions and proposals for the improvement of teacher training that we, don't, we know won't work. So as a mathematics education community across the roles that we are in, we have to step up to the challenges that we're facing and today's talk was intended to help sharpen a very logical but not yet complete argument about how to improve the quality of teaching. And I hope I've inspired you to think with me about how can we take advantage of the fact that I've got, you know, about 150 former Pfizer employees who think they'd like to enter teaching. And you know what? We're actually really short of math and science teachers in Detroit and in other urban areas of Michigan, and I'm sure you are too. So turning them away doesn't make sense. but saying that they're ready to enter the classroom doesn't either. So 
how are we going to think about this resource and how can we use these ideas to help ourselves think about the special nature of training for people who come with these kinds of skills. Thank you. Deborah, thank you again for giving us much more to think about. Uh, to talk about presiding as an unnatural activity, on my way from lunch to here, I realized that one of the things a presider was supposed to do is stop and get the gift supervisor, which I left out a step. Uh, but anyhow, thank you so very much, and we will make sure that you get it. Thank you. sure to tune in to our next podcast, NCTM's Curriculum Focal Points. What are they? How will they be used?